0: You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. Good morning. If you have your Bibles, you can open them up to Exodus chapter 32. Exodus chapter 32 is where we'll be today. If you haven't been with us the last several weeks, we have covered some big chunks of Exodus, uh, specifically looking at the um, instructions by God for how to build the tabernacle, how to specifically construct the Ark of the Covenant. Um, and then last week we looked specifically at how God gave instructions for what the priesthood was going to look like and and how God was going to uh, create this system of, uh, of a mediator to stand in place uh, for God's people and to really bring God's people to the the point of the Ark of the Covenant, where they could receive uh, forgiveness for their sins. Um, Last week we said specifically, if the tabernacle helps us understand our way home, then the priesthood is our help for getting home, because it's through the priesthood that God provides representation at his mercy seat, a representation met best by Jesus. And that's really what we saw last week, that um, the book of Exodus is pointing us to Jesus. And as we get into this Uh, deeper understanding of how God wants his people to live and worship. Um, Those things are shadows that point to Jesus, the idea of the tabernacle, God being with us. We see that fulfilled in Jesus, who is God with us. We uh, see the Ark of the Covenant, that place of propitiation, being what Jesus did on the cross for us, where he satisfied God's wrath. We see that he's a better priest. Last week we saw that Um, Aaron and his descendants were going to be limited in what they could do. They were bringing an advocacy-type approach uh, by having the names of Israel on their clothing. Um, But we saw that Aaron isn't always bought into advocating for the people, as we'll see today in Exodus 32, where he blames them for the sins of the golden calf. We saw where they had to wear bells because they weren't uh, for sure they were safe in the presence of God. Um, And so those bells were meant to Uh, both alert God and to alert the people around that they were still alive, that they were still tending to the tabernacle business, we see that Jesus is better because he's completely safe, because he's died already. He doesn't fear death in the presence of a holy God. He died already for us on the cross. And then we also saw that the priests had to go through washings and sacrifices in order to be presentable to God in the tabernacle. Jesus does that far better, right? He, in fact, not only comes holy before God, but he washes us and sanctifies us. And so he's a better priest. And so that points us uh, to Jesus as we see these shadows in the Old Testament. Today we come to a more familiar passage in Exodus chapter 32. So I draw your attention there. Uh, And I want to read to you uh, the account of what happened at the foot of the mountain as Moses is getting these instructions from God about worship So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink And rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf, and have worshipped it, and sacrificed to it, and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff necked people. Now therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them. And I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God, engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there's a noise of war in the camp. But he said, it's not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses's anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people that they are set on evil. For they said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, The man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. And he said to them, thus says the Lord God of Israel, put your sword... On your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp. And each of you, kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son, of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. The next day, Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Our summary sentence for today. As Israel disobeyed God by distrusting his plans and distorting his ways, we too must be careful to resist the temptation to grow impatient with God's timing and to grow discontent by turning to idols to meet our needs. Just as Israel disobeyed God by distrusting his plans and distorting his ways, we too must be careful to resist the temptation to grow impatient with God's timing and to grow discontent by turning to idols to meet our needs. For our kids, temptation to turn from God is real, but we must resist by continuing to trust him. This act of constructing this idol, uh, it's a rebellion against the kindness of God. Think about all that he's done for them and how easily it's dismissed, right? They have every reason to obey, Every reason to trust, if you think about all that's taken place and transpired in Egypt, uh, for 400 years they're crying out to God, God hears their cries, he sends the plagues to release them from Egypt, he's, he's brought them all through this journey that we've seen, through the Red Sea, through the wilderness, he's been providing food for them. Every reason to obey, every reason to respond, every reason to trust the kindness of God, and yet they're willing to turn from him. Acts chapter 7 Acts chapter 7, Stephen refers to this account and talks about the hearts of the people. It says in verse 39, Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. They turn their hearts to Egypt is the emphasis of the text. They return to a God who's already failed them. Think about what we learned in the plagues and how Yahweh defeated God after God after God of the Egyptians. He specifically defeated this calf God, this cow God, when he attacked the, uh, the cattle uh, with the disease, he defeated this image of God in Egypt already through the plagues, and yet they're quick to turn back to him. It's interesting to think about the days as they're waiting for Moses and trying to figure out what's going on and when's he coming back. And at some point, uh, the murmuring and the grumbling starts to stir and people start to talk and they begin to concoct this idea of going to Aaron to to develop this idol. All the while, think about what they're eating every day, right? What what were we told and what have we been promised by God in the text? That he's going to give them manna every morning outside their tent. Until they come into the promised land, they're going to have food provided for them every day. So they wake up one morning, they're sitting around, they're eating manna, talking about, hey, we don't know if God's around, we don't know if God's going to provide, we need a new God to lead us. All the while, they're being sustained by God's provision. It's interesting to think about how they're feasting on the manna that God's providing for them, wondering if God still cares for them. Right? It's not that much different than us, though. to to be feasting on God's provision, yet questioning God's provision at the same time. It's a universal problem that we have here, the idea of making idols. Uh, We're all prone to put something or someone in place of God. They decide to approach Aaron about a golden calf. All the while, the glory of God is still dwelling on the mountain. Right, They're still feasting on the manna, and yet they turn to something else to satisfy their needs. And they do this again right? Like you think like this would be enough after God comes down with his judgment and his mercy, brings death and destruction, but also preserves the people. You'd think that that would get everybody's attention going forward. Like, hey, golden calves aren't the way to go. But in first Kings chapter 12, you see Jeroboam raises up golden calves again and uses almost the same terminology. Israel, these are the gods who led you out of Egypt. Let us worship them. It's a universal problem. To make idols, we're prone to seek the things that only God can provide. Now, today we're going to be less concerned about <clears throat> trying to determine what your idols are, or what you're prone to give your worship to, and we're going to spend more time focusing on the heart condition that opens us up to that. Why would we even be prone to golden calves in our own lives? Um, it's the idea of needing certain things, joy, security, peace meaning, significance, identity. These are things that we crave as human beings. They're only found sufficiently in Christ, our Creator, and yet we try to find them in things outside of that, in everything but God. Our idols take the forms of money, sex, relationships, peer approval, competence, and skill. Right, So it can be gross activities that we normally think of as sinful, but it could also be the types of things that we just strive to be really good at because it gives us peer approval, right? Skills that we want to be so competent in that it becomes our identity and where we find our significance, beauty, brain, success. First John chapter 5, verse 21, a New Testament passage tells us to keep ourselves from idols. It's not just an Old Testament problem. It's a New Testament problem too, something that we should be aware of. Now, again, we're not gonna spend a whole lot of time talking about what our idols are and more about why we would even turn to idols. But I did wanna take just a quick minute to read to you uh, from a article uh, put out by Desiring God. Tyson shared this with me several weeks ago and I held it for today. It's a good resource to help us as we think through what things in our lives maybe are getting undue attention and worship from us. Um, so I want to read you uh, 12 things that help us evaluate and process whether certain things in our life have gained an unhealthy status in our life. Uh, things that we enjoy as part of creation that maybe we start to enjoy more than the Creator. Number one, if our enjoyment is, become, our enjoyment is becoming idolatrous when it's forbidden by God. When we begin to engage in activity for enjoyment that's clearly forbidden by God, it's become an idol to us. Number two, enjoyment is becoming idolatrous when it's disproportionate to the worth of what is desired, meaning that we get such a great uh, fulfillment from it, but what's actually giving us the fulfillment is really disproportionate to the great feelings that we get from it. We're making that thing an idol when we've made it too great of a thing. Enjoyment is becoming idolatrous when it's not permeated with gratitude. The things that we enjoy in creation ought to point us to thanksgiving and gratitude towards God. In a a season where we're coming into the holidays and we've just experienced thanksgiving, as Christians, we ought to be people who are constantly giving thanks to God for all of his good gifts. If we're enjoying things and it doesn't point us to God, it's become an idol For us. Number four, enjoyment is becoming idolatrous when it does not see in God's gift that God Himself is more to be desired than the gift. Kind of ties it in together that we should be giving thanks to God and we should be drawn towards God in the midst of enjoying His creation. If not, we've made creation an idol. Number five, enjoyment is becoming idolatrous when it's starting to feel like a right and our delight is becoming a demand when we start to feel like we can't live without it, it's becoming an idol. Number six, enjoyment is becoming idolatrous when it draws us away from our duties. When we start to give up things that we should be doing in order to enjoy these aspects of our life, it's becoming idolatrous for us. Number seven, enjoyment is becoming idolatrous when it awakens a sense of pride that we can experience this delight while others can't we take pride in what we're enjoying because others can't find that same enjoyment. It's becoming idolatrous. Eight, enjoyment is becoming idolatrous when it's oblivious or callous to the needs and desires of others, when our focus becomes so inward and self-driven that we lose sight of how we serve other people. Number nine, enjoyment is becoming idolatrous when it does not desire that Christ be magnified as supremely desirable through the enjoyment. Number 10, enjoyment is becoming idolatrous when it's not working a deeper capacity for holy delight. Enjoyment is becoming idolatrous when its loss ruins our trust in the goodness of God. If this thing is taken from us, God's no longer good. That thing has become an idol to us. Number 12, enjoyment is becoming idolatrous when its loss paralyzes us emotionally so that we can't relate lovingly to other people. I'll post the the link for you on the on the um, realm for you to go back and look at good things to filter through as we think whether or not we've allowed things to become idolatrous in our lives. I want to, before we jump into the outline, just remind you of some things that we've hit on in the past related to people who who fall into idolatrous activity that could even lead them away from the faith. Right, like we've talked before, people who who fall into idolatry and are are drawn away from trust in God are really done so for three reasons. Like there's three things that I think kind of uh, uh, kind of create an umbrella that all reasons for why people like wander from the faith, fall under. That's dissatisfaction with God, dissatisfaction with fellow Christians, and dissatisfaction with the Christian life. you could could talk to anybody who has left the faith or has fallen into sin and really backslidden uh, in their desires to follow God. It really stems from a dissatisfaction with God, like he has failed their expectations, or other Christians have failed the expectations that you have, or the Christian life in general has not delivered what you thought it would give to you. Psalm chapter 100 verse 5 is a um, a, a psalm that talks about gratitude and thanksgiving, and it really draws our attention to the fact that the Lord is good, his steadfast love endures forever, and that he's faithful to all generations. I've been sharing the, these truths, and I can't remember if we talked about this here on a Sunday morning or not. I've been sharing them at Trinity in our chapel settings, that, that we have to remember these three concepts because it keeps us trusting in the Lord, right? When discontentment and dissatisfaction our temptations to us, like, hey, God's let us down, other Christians have let us down, the Christian life in general has let me down, it hasn't delivered. These three truths keep us tethered to God. The fact that we believe that he's good, the fact that we believe that he's loving, how are those different? Well, he can be a good God, but you not experience it. The idea that God is loving towards us means that we get his goodness. His his goodness is directed towards us. So as believers, we serve a good God who has chosen to give his goodness to us. He's chosen to love us, and he's been faithful to do that to all generations, which means he'll never stop being good and loving to us. That keeps us protected from discontentment towards him. And that's what we're going to look at today in this section, is that It's not so much about the golden calf that we want to focus on, it's what led them to the golden calf. What was the heart condition that drew them to an idol? It's also important to note that all this happens in chapter 32 while God is giving instructions for the tabernacle, the ark of the covenant, and the priesthood. He's already making provision for their idolatry, right? The ark of the covenant. It it, it screams sacrifices will need to be made because these people are imperfect. The priesthood screams these people aren't good enough to come before me, they need a mediator. God is giving all of this instruction. Moses is completely oblivious, right? Like in his mind, he's thinking, Oh, my people are down there at the foot of the mountain. They're keeping the Ten Commandments. They're doing everything that we told them to do. They're they're submitted to Aaron. Aaron's doing a great job of leading them. Like Everything is just great down there. And then I'm going to roll down with the priesthood and the tabernacle, and the Ark of the Covenant, and we're just going to keep rolling with this. He's oblivious to the fact that they've fallen into debauchery. God's not oblivious to it. The things that God is planning is in response to what he knows is happening at the foot of the mountain. Now, why is all of this important? Because 1 Corinthians 10 says this applies to us. Our big emphasis throughout Exodus has been this isn't just a history lesson about a Middle Eastern people and what happened to their ancestors. This is our story. Their story applies to us. They're our people. We've been grafted into them and God has written down these things for our instruction. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 6. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, he's listing different examples of things that happen in the life of Israel. One of those being this time where they uh, ate and drank and played sexually in their worship before this golden calf. He says in verse 11, These things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. He's saying, don't think that you you wouldn't act like an an Israelite and turn to a golden calf. Like, this story is given to you so that you won't do it, because you're susceptible to it. No temptation, verse 13, has overtaken you that's not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. There's temptation that's rampant in this passage. There's temptations to doubt God, to distrust God. There's temptations by the spiritual leadership to cave to the cravings of the people. Temptations abound in this passage and everybody's giving in to the temptations and yet the instruction that's given to us is we don't have to give in to it. We can, we can escape the temptation that God makes a way of escape for us. We don't have to get in, give in. He says, these things are written down for your instruction. Let's see what was written down for our instruction in the text today. Exodus 32, point number one, avoid restlessness and impatience when God delays. Avoid restlessness and impatience when God delays. What do the people do here? They fail to apply what they know about God's word and his will. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what's become of him. Where does their sin flow from? It flows from a heart condition that fails to comply with God's word. What have they been doing for the days leading up to this? It would be interesting to, to know. Like, what were they engaged in? We know Moses has been on the mountain for 40 days what have the people been doing during that time? What were they told to do? Well, remember, we saw that as they had this, this feast before God, Moses and the elders and the, and the leadership, right? As Moses gets ready to go further up onto the mountain, the instruction is, hey, carry out what you've been already called to do, right? Listen to Aaron and her and the elders, but y'all live in light of what's already been given, Begin to, to live out the things of God that he's already given to us and I'm going to get more instruction. Apparently they're not doing that. I mean, even think about what Aaron is, is kind of instructed to do. It's up, make us gods who shall go before us. The, the, the implication seems to be that Aaron's not even doing what he should be doing. That he has to be appealed to like, hey, Aaron, do something. We're tired of waiting. They're, they're not living out what they've already been commanded to do. They fail to obey the commands that have already been given to them. And they're drawn to this idea of creating a new God. They're breaking several commands when they begin to construct this golden calf. One, they're breaking the second command. They're, they're making a graven image because Aaron tries to twist it as, hey, we're worshiping Yahweh. We're worshiping God. Like he uses God's name when he declares, here's your God. So they've broken the second command. They've, they've constructed a, an idol, a graven image, and said, this is God. But they've really broken the first command too because this God that they're calling Yahweh isn't Yahweh. The, the, The ways that they have built him aren't consistent with God's ways. The ways that they're gonna worship him aren't consistent with what God's revealed about worship. So while they may be using the proper name for God, they are not worshiping God. They've created a new God. They've created a graven image, and they're gonna worship him through adultery They fail to apply what they know about God's word and his will. Number two, they fail to accept God's design timing for their journey. What leads them into this? Well, their sin flows from a failure to trust the purposes of God. It's not just compliance with God's word, but they're not trusting the purposes of God. They need to trust that God knows what he's doing. And they were told what Moses was doing, right? Like they kind of play ignorant here and say, we don't know where Moses is. We don't know what's become of him. Well, Moses said he was going up on top of the mountain. God's glory is still very present on the mountain for them. There's not really that much confusion that should be set in. And yet they try to play dumb and ignorant and say, hey, we don't know where Moses has gone. Their impatience leads to impulsiveness. They begin to make mad choices. They lose perspective. They think, man, Moses has been gone so long, right? Like the, the idea of verse 1 and 2 is that, hey, he's been gone forever. We don't know if he's coming back. Notice what God says in verse 8. He says, uh, they've turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. From God's perspective, hey, you haven't been up here that long, Moses, and they've already turned away from me. The people are saying, he's been gone forever, Right? Like that's, that's typical of us as well, right? Like we think in our waiting for God that we've been waiting forever. And then our temptation to distrust him almost becomes justified in our minds. Hey, I should distrust him because he's been taking forever to do this. And yet from God's perspective, it's like, wow, you're turning away so quickly from me. Could you not wait a little bit longer? To reduce the cravings for false gods, we should immerse ourselves in the one true God. It helps us cope with a God who doesn't move as quickly as we would like. He's not ready to move them from the mountain. He's not ready to move them to the promised land. And you may find yourself in a spot right now, in a situation right now, where God's not moving as quickly as you would like as well. And the temptation is to distrust him. The temptation is to question him. The temptation is to become impulsive in our reactions because we're being impatient. To, to start to try to create movement on our own where there isn't meant to be movement just yet. It's a temptation to distrust trust them, and they fall prey to it. They give in to it. They're restless, and the delay, the delay of God, they're not okay with it. They're just not okay with it, and they're ready to move in a different direction. They're ready to take things into their own hands and start to create new situations and new opportunities we need to avoid our own restlessness and our own impatience when God delays in our life. That's where, that's where we open ourselves to idols, when we believe that God's not doing things the way that he should be doing. Number two, avoid recreating and redefining God and his rules for your life. Avoid recreating and redefining God and his rules for your life. They're dissatisfied with God and his timing, and so they turn to other gods. They turn to other things to give them what they feel like they're lacking from God. The people, number one, create a God who is reflected by the culture's demands. A.W. Tozer says, The essence of idolatry is the entertainment of thoughts about God that are unworthy of him. The essence of idolatry is the entertainment of thoughts about God that are unworthy of him. This new God that they create allows them to use their gifts and their resources for their own purposes. Think about how this this calf even comes about, right? Like Aaron says, Hey, we need we need some materials to build this. Right? So he he says, Bring me your your gold earrings. Well, think about their background. They're slaves. Like, why do they even have gold earrings? These are the treasures that they walked out of Egypt with, right? Like, these are the treasures that God lavished upon them as they were being released. And now what are they doing? They're surrendering them to idolatry. They're surrendering God's good gifts to unholy activity. They're even using their artistic and creative abilities in ways that serves themselves and not God. They're perverting it. We ourselves should be careful how we use God's gifts and blessings to not let the good things of this world become idols in our life. This new God is a reflection of what their culture valued. This God will allow them to live and worship like everyone else is. We don't get to reimagine God in today's culture. We don't get to worship him how we want to. Worship is built on a right perception of God, not who we think or want him to be. Maybe you've been around people who like to say things like, I like to think of God this way, right? Or or my understanding of God is this. That can be fine and good as long as it's rooted in Scripture and not our emotional feelings about certain situations. But we live in a culture where God is being recreated and redefined for us, and His ways and His purposes are also being recreated and redefine for us. Number two, the people create a God who is easily manipulated and never feared. Easily manipulated and never feared. They claim to be worshiping Yahweh, but they're doing it in ways that he would never approve of. This is a big problem today. They have a God who doesn't have commands that have to be obeyed. Now think about how we're seeing this in our own church culture. We're seeing the church more and more bend to the cultural demands related to sex, love, and relationships, right? Like that's what's happening in our church culture today. It's as though the people in our churches or even the people outside of our churches that want to come into our churches living a certain way are demanding that the leaders make us a God who's okay with this. And we have leaders who are bending to it. We have leaders who would have previously said, no, you can't follow Christ and do those things, but in the name of money and power and business, leaders are saying, hey, that probably makes sense for us to do that, right? Like we're able to attract more people because our people who want to follow Christ aren't here for whatever reason. We need to garner more people, and so they're they're, they're bending to the cultural demands of, we want a God who's okay with these things. And the leaders are saying, sure, you want to go that way? We'll lead you that way. This is a problem in our culture. This is a problem. And our kids, you you need to hear this because some of you are in that that age now where you're starting to step out from underneath your parents. You've got opportunities coming in the near future where you're going to be choosing your own churches to go to if God leads you away from this area. Don't go to a church who's bending to cultural demands. Don't go to a church who's creating a God who's not consistent with his word that's what the children of Israel are okay with here. Give us a God who's okay with us doing things that we want to do. We can't minimize God's stance on sin. God hasn't changed his stance on homosexuality or cohabitation. He hasn't changed his stance on any of that. We don't have a God who's updated his his holy requirements based on what culture's okay with today. That's not how our God works and functions. We don't get to use culture to justify our behavior. We can't use this activity and say, hey, God's okay with it now, it's worshipful now. Think about how the people are acting before this calf and think about how they were acting prior to to God on the mountain, right? Like God in his thunderous holiness has revealed himself on the mountain and the people are like, oh, like we can't even like look at him. We can't even talk to him. Like Moses, be our mediator. We're scared to death. Now it's like, hey, we're fine in front of this calf. Like, like there's no, there's nothing to fear because we've created a God who's not concerned with holiness, who's not concerned with obedience, right? Like we can give our worship to this type of God. They want to recreate and redefine God to justify the lifestyle that they want to live now. They want new rules for their life. The only thing that's feared in this scene is the people. It's Aaron, right? It's Aaron caving to the mob. What do they do? They come to Aaron and they say, look, get up, make us a God. Aaron says, okay, give me the rings and I'll do it. He received the gold from them, verse four says, fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. He did exactly what they asked him to do. He fears them versus the glory of God that's behind him on the mountain. He's like the pastors today who are willing to lead people wherever they want to go. And they take this invisible God, they exchange it for a visible idol. There's no awe, there's no respect, there's no holiness in his presence, and they come undone in their sinful acts before him. The language that's used here is very, very sensual in what they're doing um, and it's something that Joshua doesn't even understand from a distance. He says, hey, the, 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 the noise that I'm hearing from the camp sounds like war's happening. Like it's completely out of control. Like he would have been, he would have been like awestruck if, if Moses had been like, I think they're having a worship service. Like that's not consistent with anything that we've heard that God wants for us. And that's exactly what's happening instead. And God says, go down to them go down to him. We've got to deal with this. Now we're going to come back to the conversation that Moses, the prayer that Moses has with God to to, to see his relenting of his hot anger against them. We'll come back to that at the end. But number three, avoid comparisons and excuses as a means of atonement. Avoid comparisons and excuses as a means of atonement. Again, we're focusing more on the heart condition of idols versus what our specific idols are okay? We get led into idolatry when we are restless and impatient and discontent with God and his timing in our life. When we get dissatisfied with him, we turn our worship and our attention to something else, right? And then we want to recreate and redefine God so that he's okay with it, so that he's okay with us giving our affections to these other things. And then when we get called out on it, we want to minimize the sin in our life so that we can hang on to those idols right we want to, we want to hang on to them, so what we do is we, we compare ourselves to others to make ourselves feel better. What does Aaron do? He says, "Man, these people are evil right not i 'm evil not not i'm 'm a slime ball who doesn't have a backbone to stand up to them. it's man, these people are evil, and then he begins to make excuses for his involvement. Moses has the prayer conversation we'll come back to um he comes down and, and he sees what's happening. He takes some action. We'll come back to that part. In verse 21, it says, And Moses said to Aaron, What did these people do to you that have brought such a great sin upon them? Like, he's expecting something massive. Like, man, what did they do? Tie you up and beat you and, and harass you and, and threaten you? Like, what did they do to you? Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people. They're set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know where he, what was become of him. So I said to them, let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me and I threw it into the fire and out came this calf. He's dismissive. He's dismissive of his own involvement by highlighting the evil of the people. We've already talked about how he doesn't function as a good priest here. His impulse is to convince himself that he's right and good And it's so powerful that it leads him to blame others for his own sins. And that's true for us too, right? Like if you've ever found yourself convicted over sin, typically our first impulse is to try to minimize our involvement and to try to blame others for what we've done. He acts like Adam in the garden, right? He shifts the blame. The people are evil. He shouldn't be liable for listening to them because these are the people that were given to him, right? Like Adam says, you gave me this wife who led me into this sin. Aaron's like, you gave me these people. They're evil. They led me into this sin. Our impulse is to try to convince people that we're the ones that are good and right, and it's everybody else that's evil, dismissive of our involvement by highlighting the evil of the people. Pointing out the temptation isn't an excuse, right? Like 1 Corinthians helps us to see that. Does temptation exist? Absolutely. Do people sin against us? Absolutely. Does that give us permission then to respond sinfully or to fall into sin ourselves? Absolutely not. We don't get to make excuses by making comparisons to others as though, hey, we're not as bad as those people. Look what else Aaron does. He's dismissive of his own involvement by creating a reality to explain away his responsibility. Like we, we, we think this is, this is humorous, for him to say it this way right like I threw the gold in the fire and the calf jumped out it was the most unbelievable thing I'm telling you like uh middle schoolers aren't much different than the children of Israel when they're when they're caught in sin right like I usually have people sitting in my office with me when I'm when I'm doing discipline and I'll, I'll pull a kid in and I'm like okay but talk me through this, like, here's my understanding of the situation, you tell me what your perspective is, and they'll give me a side of the story where, like, I literally have to stop and be like, no, like, you know that's ridiculous, right? Like, and, and, and behind me, like, I've got my staff that's almost, like, ready to bust out laughing because it's so similar to something like this, right? You won't believe it, Mr. Vincent, like, we threw the gold in the fire and the calf jumped out, right? That's what we do, though, right? Like, we try to twist the situation, to point ourselves in the best light possible, right, to where we create this alternate reality of things happening. Like Aaron may have really convinced himself that that's what happened, that he didn't construct it. He may be trying to justify himself so much that he doesn't even feel like he's lying at this point. He redefines the events of the story to minimize what he actually did. He's dismissive with comparisons and excuses, not too different from us. How does God respond to this? How does God respond to this heart condition of the people? Well, he responds with justice, right? He responds with justice. He sends Moses down to deal with it. And there's two ways that we see it happening. Moses breaks the commands, right? He, he brings the, the tablets down and he smashes them. Now, I kind of grew up thinking like this was wrong of Moses and that he gets rebuked and disciplined for it later. I, I don't think that he does though. I think it's symbolic to the people. It's a public display of this is what you have done. You have broken God's commands, all of them, right? It's consistent with what the New Testament tells us. You break one command, you've broken all of God's covenant. And that's exactly what he depicts by breaking these tablets. He gets rebuked later for his anger, right when he gets upset at the at the water where he strikes the rock instead of speaking to it God does rebuke him there God never rebukes him for breaking these tablets which means it was probably righteous anger just like God felt towards the people he breaks the commands and then he breaks the idol and he grinds up the gold and puts it into the water and demands them drink it think what he think about what he does to the idols think about the picture here this idol that they're giving their affection to <clears throat> this idol that they're saying hey we want to follow it out of, the, out of the desert into the promised land. He says, you're going to drink it and you're going to turn it into human waste, right? Like you're going to expel that idol from your body to where it can never be used again in that manner. He doesn't let them tuck their idols away in the closet so that they can come back out on a rainy day. That's often what we do to our idols, right? Like we, we identify, hey, this thing is becoming idolatrous in my life. Let me put that on the shelf for a while. Like, I don't want to deal with it too much. I want to be able to go back to it if I need it later. Moses says, We ain't coming back to this. Like, those, those golden earrings, we're not going to refashion those again. Like, you're going to drink it and you're going to expel it from your body and it's going to be human waste and we're not going to use it anymore. That's what you have done to God's good gifts. He gets rid of it. And then he calls people in and says, Hey, we're going to deal with the people who are responsible for this, and 3,000 of them are killed. 3,000 of them are killed in judgment for what's been done. We serve a God of justice. We serve a God who cares about our sin. We serve a God who cares about our idols. We serve a God who is insistent on us being obedient and trusting him. But there's hope for atonement that's attached to this story as well. Let's go back to see how Moses interacts and prays for God to intervene differently. God says, I've seen, verse 9, this people, it's stiff-necked. Let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and my I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. Now, I think we're going to talk more about this next week because there's so much going on in this passage. I don't want to rush through the idea because this passage sometimes is used uh, to support uh, a, a theology known as open theism where God changes his mind, where God doesn't know the future and God's open to, to new plans and new purposes and new perspectives. That's not what's happening here, okay? Like, I believe fully that God never intended to destroy the people of Israel. And one of the ways that we, well, a couple of ways that we can know that is, one, he plans to send Moses down. Why would he send Moses down to a people that he's gonna destroy? And two, he even phrases it as, let me alone so I can do this, which ends up being an invitation to not let me alone, right? Moses becomes the mediator that the people need for the time being, right? He points to Jesus, but he will serve just fine for right now because he attaches himself to the people, right? God could have done this. God could have killed all the people and started over with Moses, and he wouldn't have violated his promises. Moses is still a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. If he starts over with Moses, he can still fulfill all of his promises. It would just look a lot different. Moses doesn't bite on this opportunity for his own self-glory, right? He doesn't bite on the opportunity for the New Testament to say, if you're of Moses, you're of Christ. It's still Abraham, right? He doesn't bite on this. Instead, he says, God, like, don't do this. Verse 11, he implores the Lord. Why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you've brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent he brought them out to kill them in the mountain, to consume them from the face of the earth? turn from your burning anger, relent from the disaster. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He prays and advocates for the people. He appeals to God's character and his faithfulness. He appeals to God's reputation and purposes. These are the same grounds that we get atonement for as well, right? Notice that, that Moses doesn't come. Um, he doesn't come and try to advocate for the people by minimizing their sin. He doesn't try to justify their merits. Hey, they've done pretty good up to this point. Let's Let's forgive them. Right? He doesn't make excuses for them. He understands that they deserve justice. But he appeals to God's character, his faithfulness, his reputation, his purposes, how God has already done so much to work the salvation of the people. God's glory, it's at stake. His promises are being evaluated by the outside world. What will people think of God if he does this? And God relents from it how he will interact with the people is shaped by the mediator who he prompted to get involved. This points us to how God interacts with us. Jesus as the mediator steps in when we deserve God's wrath and punishment. He mediates on our behalf and says, I will stand in their place. I will die for them. We'll see similar language that Moses uses in chapter three next week. He becomes the mediator that the people need here. The hope for atonement praying for God's intervention. It's the same ways that we can pray today, appealing to God's character, his faithfulness, his reputation, and his purposes in our own life. But notice how the passage ends. After the sin is dealt with, there's still this this looming question as to what God's going to do going forward. It says, the next day Moses said to the people, you've sinned a great sin. Now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin there's still more that needs to happen for them to move forward. Notice that Moses doesn't say, okay, everybody, that was a rough day yesterday. Today we need to do better. We got to make up for this by trying harder today. No, he says like, I got to go make atonement for this. Your mediator has to go see if we can get this fixed on God's end. We don't get to, to try better when we fall into idolatry. We still need the mediator. We still need Christ who forgives us of our sins. That's the hope that we have for atonement too. We'll pick up there next week and seeing how Moses goes back to God and the, the interaction they have about how are we going to move forward with this sinful, unholy people. But I want to give you two points of application to leave today with. Moses comes down off the mountain and he makes an appeal after grinding the, 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 the gold up into powder and making him drink it. He says in verse 26, who is on the Lord's side, come to me. He says, who's going to shape your decision-making going forward? Whose side are you on? Notice that before the death happens in the camp, this appeal goes out to everybody. It's this idea that if you want to come back to God's side, now's the time to come, right? And then those, those Levites step forward and say, hey, we're on God's side, and he says, okay, if you're really on God's side, take sin seriously and let's go deal with it. And he gives them instructions to carry the sword and to kill people that are even closest to them, right? And says like, we gotta cut this off. I mean, there's two points of application for us. Number one, always side with the Lord by taking appropriate action to sin around you. Always side with the Lord by taking appropriate action to sin around you. I put in my notes, we should be decisively oppositional to the sin around us. We should be decisively oppositional to the sin around us, both the sin in our own life and the sin in the lives of others around us too that could lead us into temptation. There's appropriate ways for that to look today. This isn't an appeal to us to grab our swords on the way home and to kill people who sin in our life, right? But it is a call to separate from those people when needed. It is a call to separate. The idea is, whose approval do we want? Do we want to be like Aaron, who says, "Hey, y'all want to do that? I'm not going to stop you." right? For our, for our kids who are in, in the school systems, who, who, who interact with other kids who call themselves Christians and, and they fall into sin and they choose sin. do you want their approval? Do you want to do what they're doing? Are you going to be like, the, the, like the, uh, the, are you going to appeal to the popular and say, "Hey, this is popular, this is what we're doing, then I'm going to do it too." Or are you willing to take a stand to say? That's wrong. We're, I'm not going to do that. Like I'm, I'm going I'm to get the approval of God on this, not the approval of my friends. Like I'm willing to take a stand. I'm going to side with the Lord by taking appropriate action. This could be in our job places where where we see uh, unethical things happening, and we say I'm not going to. I'm not going to continue to work here. I'm not going to continue to subject myself to this. This is wrong. It's inappropriate. It's evil. This is not what the Lord would desire. There's appropriate actions that we take today whether it means sitting at a different lunch table, whether it means looking for a different job, doesn't mean taking up a sword. But there is a call for us to take appropriate action. Then number two, always answer the call to return to the Lord's side when you fall into sin. When we fall into sin, we can, we can choose to make excuses and comparisons and minimize and justify, or we can say, you know what, I need to come back to the Lord's side. Proverbs twenty eight thirteen. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Psalm chapter 16, verse 4. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The opportunity to repent for the people is implied here. Who's on the Lord's side? Some of them answer and respond. Some of them don't the ones that don't die, the ones that don't are killed in this situation. There's a call for us to return to the Lord's side too. It's a universal problem for us to be tempted by idols. It's a universal problem for us to be tempted to be dissatisfied with God. We can fight that. 1 Corinthians 10 says there's a way of escape from that temptation, right? But even when we fall, we have an advocate, we have a mediator who stands for us. We can come back to his side. You may need to do that today. You may you may have, throughout the course of this, identified some idols in your life, and you say, you know what, those are things that I don't need to just put on the shelf. I need to, I need to get rid of them completely, that they've gained an unholy place in my life. Maybe there's things in your life, people that you've you've been with, that you say, you know what, they're going down a path I don't want to go down. I need to take a stand against that. I need to separate myself from that. That may be where the application is for you today. Either way, I would I would encourage you, as we leave today to be prayerful about how you respond to this passage, because this isn't just a history lesson of what happened to Israel. 1 Corinthians 10 says, these are instructions for us to live by going forward as well. Let's pray. God, we love you, we praise you, and we thank you that you have revealed to us so much in your word, so much about your will. And God, we sit here today and we wonder, when are you coming back? Things continue to, to fall apart around us. Our culture continues to turn their attention further away from you. We play the waiting game of wondering, when will you send Jesus? Lord, help us not to be like Israel, who said, you know what? We don't know what happened to Moses. It's time to do something different. We're tired of waiting. Lord, help us to never grow weary in waiting for you to come back. You've told us where you went. You told us what you're doing. And you told us when the time's right and ready, you will come back. Lord, help us to be on your side when you come back. Lord, help us to not be amongst the group that will be found worshiping falsely when you do return. Lord, help us to be different. Help us to to stay clear from idols as you command us. Lord, help us to, to not just look outwardly and say, what am I giving my affection to? But help us to look inwardly and say, why am I doing that? Why am I prone to find my identity and my security and my joy in things other than you? Lord, help us to see our tendencies and our proneness to to be dissatisfied with your timing. Help us to see our tendencies to want to live how we want to live and to recreate you in our minds so that you're okay with the things that we're doing. Lord, help us to see that we have tendencies to minimize and to justify when we are caught in sin. Lord, help us to have a desire for your holiness. Help us to have a desire to stand up and say, we are on your side. Lord, we thank you for Jesus who is our mediator. We thank you for Jesus who stands in the gap when your righteous anger should burn towards us. Lord, we thank you that Jesus opted to take that anger and that wrath for us. We don't stand here today as redeemed saints because we're good people. We stand here as redeemed saints because we're saved people, saved by the blood of your Son, Jesus, and we praise you and thank you for it today. In your Son's name we pray. Amen.